Well, amen. I'm saying that like you believed it. I already preached a sermon with a song. That's a mark of a good song, so let's go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we've been studying together, uh, and this is our last sermon from Psalm 32. So our series has been Summer in a Psalm, so if this is our last sermon in the Psalm, it means the summer's about over too, so give you a heads up about that. So we're going to talk about Psalm 32 this morning. Um, got three points I want to make. They're, they're don't, not bulleted or numbered in your handout, but um, trust the Lord to speak a great word for us today. Let's pray together. Father, what we need most is to hear from you. And the place that we'll hear from you is from your word. So these are important moments for your people. Father, I pray that you would cultivate continually in us a deep, deep desire for your word. Father, all sorts of things clamor for our time, for our attention, for our affection. But Father, I pray you would distinguish your people here at Calvary by an overwhelming hope to know you from the pages of Scripture. We believe that's how we can know you, is by the revealed Word of God in the Bible. So use these words, ancient words from long ago, that are so clearly applicable for today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read all the way through the psalm as we begin together. This is a psalm of David. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when, I kept silent, my, um, for, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, the very beginning of the psalm teaches us how to be happy. And if you were to ask the average person in America how to be happy, I don't know what answer you would get, but most likely you would not get the answer that David supplies in Psalm 32.1. In fact, I think a lot of people believe that happiness today, in today's culture, is to do away with the word actually that David uses there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. I think a lot of people believe we could be happy if we just removed the word transgression. In fact, if we just say, let's just pretend there are no transgressions and we get to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. Now, some people think that's freedom, but the Bible says it's actually a quick route to destruction. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, not blessed is the one who pretends he has no transgressions. So point number one, there is this line of thinking through the psalm. 
David's transgression leads to David's depression. David's depression leads to David's confession. And David's confession leads to David's liberation. So let's talk about, the, that's point number one, those, those things. First of all, the transgression that leads to depression. That's what he says, right? Uh, uh, verse, verse three, when I kept silent, what's he keeping silent about? He's keeping silent about his transgression. And if you'll remember the details from 2 Samuel 11, they're, they're pretty nasty details about the transgression. The, the Bible says, um, in the springtime of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Now, for physical health, we're told that uh, one of the key things to do is to get regular checkups, right? And as particularly early detection is very helpful in preventing all sorts of physical ailments we may have. So get regular checkups. Early detection is the key. I've heard that on so many commercials and read it in so many different brochures. And it's also true when it comes to sin. Early detection in the heart before you go down the road of transgression is, is best. And already, it doesn't sound like it to the ear, we've got a detection of possible transgression. Just listen to the scripture again. In the springtime of the year, the time when Kings go out to battle. David sent Joab. David sent somebody else to do what he was supposed to do. So again, we've said this before, but we want to mark it down, lay claim to it. Men get themselves into trouble when they refuse to accept their responsibility and then remove themselves from accountability. And that's 2 Samuel verses, chapter 11, verses 1, 1 and 2. Not only did he send Joab, the Bible says, and he sent all his servants with him and all Israel. But David remained in Jerusalem. So the early detection, the Holy Spirit would reveal and, and most likely did to David, you're not where you need to be. You're not in the situation that you need to be. You removed yourself from accountability. That's why every believer in the Lord, they, they need to be under the authority of Scripture and in the accountability, I believe, of the local body of Christ. So that other people know what you're going through. The other people hold you accountable to walk with the Lord. Uh, but David removed himself from that. And then he, without knowing, he doesn't see all the steps coming. He set himself up for failure. He set himself up for disaster. Because while he's in Jerusalem, he's removed from responsibility. And when he's removed himself from responsibility, guess what he has left to do? Nothing. He's got nothing left to do. You know the old, the old saying, idleness is the devil's workshop. Well, it finds its scriptural proof that it's true. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 4, late one afternoon, David arose from his couch. He's turned into a couch potato. The slayer of Goliath has turned into a couch potato. He went walking up on the roof of the king's house, and there from the roof he saw a woman, and she was bathing, and she was very beautiful. And David inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, Uriah's wife? But David sent for her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and the transgression just begins to get worse and worse and worse. Now, what we learn from Psalm 32 is that in the midst of David's transgression, there came a spiritual depression. There are always consequences to sin, but the first consequence of sin is always the same. It severs fellowship with God. Now, that doesn't mean anything for people who don't have fellowship with God. Unbelievers who don't know what it means to walk with God, it's, it's not a consequence in their mind because, because they don't know the sweetness of knowing Him. In fact, Jesus said, this is eternal life that you may know Him. And so if you walk with God, the worst case scenario is that you are out of fellowship with, with him. And so there's a spiritual transgression that leads to spiritual depression. Now, let me just say this real quick. If there's a transgression that doesn't lead to depression, there needs to be an inspection because there's probably been a recession. If not, if not, there's never been a resurrection. We're just going to say that on the basis of the scripture. If you can sin and it doesn't bother you, here's what David said, night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. 
Watch the heavy hand upon him. The hand's heavy upon him because it's saying, David, you've got to repent. You've got to turn around. How do you think David's quiet times were going during this season of his life? Before he confessed his sin. How about he opened up that Bible and there's the book of the law. I just don't even want to read it. Because all that the Bible will have to say to him at that point is what? You need to repent. You need to confess. So, again, mark these things very clearly. Transgression leads to the spiritual depression. And the only way out of the depression is confession. Now, again, every marker that we're on, there's a lie. There's a deception. Because in the marker of depression, it might be that you used to say, well, I just got to get over it. There's no way to get over it. There's just a way to have it covered. It's what David said. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, again, we live in a day and in a culture that says there's no need to cover transgression. But the grace of God uh, leads, leads to the next verse. He was depressed and discouraged in the heat of summer. Now, we're in August, so we know what we're talking about here in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. You walk outside, take two steps, and you just feel like you're going to melt, Right? Spiritually, that's how David felt, because he's cut off from the only one he can give, that can give him rest. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, if you look at verse, four and, uh, excuse me, verse 5, I want you to count the number of times that you read the first person personal pronoun in these forms, either of the word I or the way, word my, right? I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He says it over and over and over. That's the heart of confession. Not that somebody else is to blame. Not that it's their fault. David's coming clean and said, it's my fault. It's my transgression. It's my sin. He's laying ownership of it. So the, so the depression leading to the confession, good news is that it leads to liberation. And then remember, this was not easy for David. He's a man after God's own heart, and this is not easy. Remember, Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him about his sin. Now, fallen humanity, none of us likes to really be confronted over our sin. Nobody does. But Nathan the prophet comes, and why is he confronting? For David's good. For David to be restored. It's just like nobody really enjoys going to the doctor. But you've got to go. And a good doctor will tell you the truth. Right? You don't want a doctor to just tell you the good news. Nathan's a good doctor, spiritually speaking. He goes and he confronts David. And David, David's in, existing in this false world of thinking he's getting away with it when really he's not getting... I mean, he's done some terrible things. He's murdered Uriah's, or he's murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Not personally, but implicitly. He, he, and he's trying to cover up all his tracks. And just notice, while he's getting away with it, the more he gets away with it, the worse he feels. The more miserable he becomes until he realizes he's never gotten away with it. But there is this great liberation. He says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin." And let's not get the grace of God wrong. Some people think the grace of God means that God just kind of cuts us some slack. That God's just nice and, yeah, David, you murdered somebody. And yes, David, you committed adultery. But, uh, go boy, just try harder. That's not the grace of God. If that's your understanding of the grace of God, here's what happens. The sin that you think the grace of God forgave you for, you just keep committing it over and over and over. And over. Because, ah, he's going to forgive me anyway. 
It's not that big a deal. He's going to continue to cut me some slack. Uh, It's not God cutting us slack. It's God laying on Christ the iniquity of us all. The grace of God is not God saying, ah, we're just not going to worry about it. The grace of God is we're going to worry about it to the nth degree. So much are we going to worry about it, so concerned are we about it, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to come and be crucified for sin. That's the grace of God. All we like sheep have gone astray, but he's laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And, and how do you know? How do you know if you've experienced this grace of God? Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. Do you see the one who's experienced the grace of God is not eager to get back into trouble. They're eager to be preserved from trouble in Christ. Take the prodigal son for example. Here's a, here's a guy who said what a lot of young people said. I just want to get up out of here. I just want to be done with here, be done with this town that I've grown up in and go to a far country. So the Bible says that this young boy came up to his dad and said, Dad, give me the inheritance that's coming my way. And that day he packed up everything he had and the Bible says he went off to a distant country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And then there came a drought. You want to talk about the heat of summer. There came a drought and there was nothing to eat. So that boy went and hired himself out to a farmer who sent him out into the fields to, pee, to feed Pigs. It's pretty low, isn't it? Here's what David will say in this psalm. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. So here he is. And an interesting phrase Jesus says in Luke 15. And then when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough to eat? And yet here I'm starving. I'll go to my father. Now listen to what he said. And I will say, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he arose and went. Those are, those are really important words. He arose and he went. He actually did it. He actually put action to his thinking. And all of us who know Jesus love these words. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran to him and embraced him and kissed him over and over and said, this son of mine who was dead now is found. And then here's what the Bible says. The boy with his rehearsed speech started to say it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to come. About that time, he's smothered by a kiss. Smothered. Dad, I'm no longer coming. And his dad just hugs the wind right out of him. Said, man, we're going to have a celebration. We're going to have a party. Get the fattened calf. Now, let me ask you this. After that happened, after he's redeemed, after he's restored, and it's time to get up and work the next day, What do you think that younger son's attitude was when it came to working and serving his father? I can guarantee you this. He was the best worker his father had. Not like the older brother. We know about him. That's another sermon for another day. The older brother's this legalistic, unregenerate, mean snake of a man. The younger boy, he's experienced the grace of God. And by the way, the father had extended grace to the older brother too. But again, that's a sermon for another day. So we'll just stay on the younger brother for now. I bet he got up the crack of dawn. The alarm clock didn't even have to go off. And he got in those fields and worked and worked and worked and worked out of gratitude. Do not be like the horse or the mule without understanding or it will not stay near you. That boy, he had no affection left for the far country. And that's what it's true of those who've been born again. There's not any affection left for David. There's no eagerness. Just let God cut me some slack so I can go on doing what I wanted to do. Anyway, now what he wants to do is what the Father wants him to do. So here we see, what's, the, what's one way we can measure this? Look at verse 11. This is interesting, isn't it? 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the psalm begins with happiness and it ends with happiness. Um, in 1993, I was at a friend's house and the North Carolina Tar Heels won the national championship in April of that year. Beat Michigan. I don't know if you remember this. The Fab Five of Michigan went down to the Tar Heels. And when that clock struck zero and the game was over and the confetti started rolling, man, I shouted. I, I, the other guy was a Carolina fan, so we high-fived each other. And we're just so excited. And then I was sitting in church the next Sunday, Sunday evening, and we're singing a hymn about the goodness of God and His grace. And, and I just kind of sensed the Lord's come near to me. Is this song not as good as a national championship? You know what I mean? The things that we shout for joy about. And then David says, this is true of those who've been delivered. Oh, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Who shouts for joy? All you upright in heart. So I'm just taking the page of Scripture. If there's no shouting for joy, the conclusion here is, it may not be upright in heart. So again, first point is, there's... Uh, transgression, confession, depression, liberation. Let me give you a second point. God's counsel is for those, number two, God's counsel is for those who desire to willingly stay near Him. We looked at these verses some last week, but look at them with me again in verse 8. I will instruct you. This is the Lord speaking now. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So let me talk to you for just a few moments about this instruction. First of all, we need instructing. It's a mark of humility is to be teachable. The person the Lord doesn't instruct is the person who says, I don't want you to instruct me. Have you had a, ever had a student like that, ever been in a teaching situation, you're trying to correct them, trying to teach them, trying to share with them, and they're just like this the whole time? It's this arrogance and it's pride. The Lord speaks to the, to the humble. So, so uh, uh, the Lord, the author of life, is, in, is willing to teach us about life give you a couple of statements real quick about the instruction. First of all, it's vital instruction. And it's especially vital for the beginner, for the new believer. It's sort of like a newborn baby. You can't feed these babies enough. They don't mind crying out in the middle of the night for nourishment. That's vital instruction for the new, for the new believer. If you're young in your faith, oh, you've got to, got to, be, in the, got to be in the Word. The Bible was given to instruct us about God and about ourselves. We don't know Him apart from His instruction. So first, it's vital for the beginner. It's also vital for the confused. Some people sometimes say, I only know enough to be dangerous. And there can be some validity to that sort of statement. For the confused, um, to, to use a physical uh, example, you got a newborn child, and then the newborn child starts to grow up, and then they hit, hit, hit this uh, season of life, this wonderful season of life called adolescence. Hey, man, it can be such a confusing period of time, very impressionable. Uh, the, the, the teenage years that we've all gone through, I mean, I've told you many times before, the most difficult season of my life was middle school. Benvenu Middle School, and going there and you're just nervous you're just confused what life's about who am i what's what and so it's vital instruction for that spiritual season of life as well the the confused the confused who don't know for example how to answer some spiritual questions to distinguish truth and error they can hear a false teacher and that sounds like the truth they're confused 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Good news is that it's instruction for the beginner, instruction for the confused, instruction for the confused. And just so we all are in this, it's also vital for the forgetful. You ever get forgetful about the word? Forgetful about scripture? Have you ever noticed how many times the Bible says things for us to remember? Remember Lot's wife. Remember to keep the Sabbath. Remember, uh, go with me to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Here's a forgetful person telling us not to be forgetful. Remember Peter, right? I will never deny you. And then the rooster crows. Remember Lot's wife. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Over and over we get reminders for the forgetful. And just look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, and our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. It's instruction for the beginner. It's instruction for the confused. And even those who are mature in their faith, we tend to get forgetful. So the Lord says, first of all, it's vital instruction. And then I want you to know that it's practical instruction. We're not just talking about things in theory here that have nothing to do with showing up at work tomorrow morning. You know, one of the first laboratories, so to speak, for all the scripture that we talk about is going to be your home. And particularly those of us who are married. That's where, that's where it's, I mean, we're just, I mean, we're going to get to lunch today. And if you're not careful, we'll already forget be forgetful of some things, right? It's practical. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, Psalm 119 says. It's not theoretical purity the Lord's talking about. It's actual purity. If you open up this book, it's very practical in what it says about marriage, what it says about sex, what it says about money, what it says about concept. The instruction is precept, and then it's practical, The instruction informs us how to do business, James 4. Handle money, James 5. Serve as employees, Ephesians 5. If you do not practice it, it's sort of like memorizing a bunch of recipes but never cooking. Can you imagine going to a chef and saying, he's the greatest chef on earth, well, what do you cook? I don't cook. I just know the recipes. And sometimes uh, the Bible becomes like a recipe book that's on the shelf, and you know what's in it, but you don't ever actually eat it. It's supposed to be precept, yes, but practical. The aroma of your life should be all the things that you're cooking, so to speak, from what you've learned in, in, in the Scripture. And then he also says it's watchful instruction. I will counsel you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. A few months ago, I was taking a flight from, um, I believe it was JFK in New York City, all the way over to Mumbai, India, a 16-hour flight. And um, it just seemed like everybody on the plane was asleep but me. And it's 3 in the morning our time. I don't know what in the world time it is in the actual place we're going. And I'm looking around, and man, everybody's just knocked out. And then I had this thought. What if the pilots are asleep too? <laughs> and and that's, the, um, that's the first step onto a panic attack, really. Because there's no way to go check, you know. You go knock on that door, you know, I don't know what they'll do. Uh, 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 watchful instruction. The Lord says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Uh, I'm hopeful when those 
pilots were trained, they had a watchful trainer, right? The, 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 the training pilot may take his hands off the controls, but I hope he's not going to take his eyes off, right? Um, you want your surgeon to be well taught, don't you? Nobody, uh, nobody wants to go into the surgical room and the surgeon say, oh, this is the first time I've ever done this. Did anybody train you? Oh, no, man, we're just going to wing it. Nobody wants that, right? <laughs> You've got to be careful in a spiritual sense who you're listening to, the counsel that you're accepting. So I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you, again, I know I feel like I say this every week, but just you, you can go home and cut your television on to some talk shows and some whatever, and, I mean, those aren't watchful pilots. Those are blindfolded pilots, and when they begin to tell you about life and about love and about all sorts of things, it's not watchful instruction. The language here is uh, indicative of um, a, a teacher and an apprentice. In these days, it's common, for example, to someone making furniture. Somebody's learning to make furniture in those days. The, the master would come alongside and kind of put their hands in. Here's how, you, how it goes. And it reminds me with Abel, first year of baseball. I'd put my hand on the bat, and his feet are all confused. No, you're this foot here, and elbow back, arms up, eyes up, hands on. Watchful instruction. Don't just say, go do this, and then I go back inside to eat a sandwich. Or, so it's watchful instruction. The, maybe the best example is you watch a mom with her child just learning to walk. Walk. A mom is careful, it's tender, it's, it's kind, it's patient, and it's watchful. And she'll get those fingers out, and, that, and the, sometimes the baby will put her feet on the toes, and, and you start to walk. Now, it's precious and cute when they're 11 months old, a year old, learning to walk. You don't want to be going to second grade this year, right? And mommy, put your feet, put your feet down, we're going to the second, take a step. You know, instruction's leading to maturity, but it's watchful instruction. It's careful instruction. It's what the Lord says. I will, I will instruct and teach you. And while he's watching us and teaching us, we've got to be sensitive. For example, next go around David, when it's the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, it's not just that David knows I should go out to battle. This is, this is how David knows if he's truly repented. He actually goes out to fight. He actually, so, so not theory, but also practice. If the Bible says, flee sexual immorality, it's not theory. Oh, I should flee. I shouldn't be watching this. I shouldn't go here. I shouldn't be alone with this. It's actually, you, you, you actually did it. And this is a careful distinction that the Lord makes about the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who know his law and do it and teach others to do the same. They shall be called great in the kingdom of God. Of heaven, so it's watchful instruction. It's practical, and it's and it's vital instruction. And then we get verse nine. <laughs> Thank the Lord that it's there. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And we talked about that last week. How a stubborn mule just won't do what you want it to do. A submissive child unto the Lord listens to him. And when he says, go right, they go right. And in fact, uh, here's, here's a great uh, attribute of the maturing in their godliness, is that while we talked about the early detection of sin, it gets earlier and earlier and earlier. It's not last minute, oh, I better not go there. It happens much sooner. Um, sort of like, to use the example, if the sin is walking off the stage, the uh, beginner or the confused 
might just say, how close can I get to this? Without, and then all somebody has to do is come along and shove them over, right? Don't be like a horse or mule without understanding. If this is sin, not because I have to, am I going to get far away from this, but because I want to. It's my desire is to be, is to be near him. Let me give you one last thing quickly is in summary, my third summary statement of Psalm 32, is it gives two clear pictures of life in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but, so contrast, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What's David saying there? The believer has no real reason not to rejoice. I know that's a double negative. I didn't figure out how else to say it. The believer has no real reason not to continually be rejoicing. Now again, to Matthew's point earlier, that doesn't mean that there aren't hard things in life. doesn't mean that they're not difficult medical reports, difficult circumstances. But there's no real reason not to rejoice because as Paul said, what's going to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Conversely, for the wicked, there's no real reason to rejoice. Ultimately, Now, one of two ways in life. Either focus on the fleeting, momentary, at best 85, 90, 100 years you get on this life, or what's behind the curtain and what is to, to come. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. And you see where David was and where God's brought him. Where David was, man, I hope nobody ever finds out about this. Man, I don't know how we're going to cover this up. Man, I don't know what's going to happen to my reputation. I mean, to where he is now, singing for joy. And that's kind of it is when the people of God gather. The people of God, as they gather and they sing, it's either, I hope nobody finds out about this, reality. He's found out about it. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord see all things. He's given us an invitation to confess our sin, and he does the covering. David started trying to cover it himself. It's not possible. Because he could never cover it from the Lord. And here's the good news of the gospel. The very one from whom we cannot hide our sin is the one who offers to pay the penalty for it. So as we stand together, be glad in the Lord. We're going to pray, we're going to sing, and have a time of invitation. And let's not be hearers of the word only, but also doers. So, for example, we said, yeah, we can go on a stand together. I'm sorry, I didn't do a very good job of that, did I? Don't be like a horse or a mule, just go on a stand up. <laughs> Is there a regular, repeated, habitual pattern of sin in your life that as you, conf- as you commit those sinful practices, you find that you're not, you're not um, feeling the hand of the Lord heavy upon you. I just want you to know that's like a warning sign. It's like a warning sign. Or perhaps His hand is heavy upon you. You'll always be more satisfied and glad that you've repented than you put it off. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, maybe it'd be uh, like a going to the doctor, so to speak, and the Lord will put His hand on something. This pattern, 
this gossip, this jealousy, this anger, this bitterness, this sexual immorality, this lust, this greed. We've got to remove it. We've got to remove it. And it can be removed. And the grace of God is not going to cut you slack. The grace of God is going to say, we're going to carry this to the cross and it will be paid for in full. And as far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Or maybe you'd say in my life right now, I've not been, I've been forgetful. I've not been devoting myself to the instruction of the Lord. This, let's take a, the invitation is the opportunity for the Lord to speak clearly to us. So let's bow our heads. and Then if He so moves, He may nudge you to pray, to come to the front. Some, sometimes it just helps to put actions behind thoughts, to kneel and to seek His face here at the front. The invitation is open and you're free to do that. Certainly you can do that where you are. But sometimes it's, it's good in life to set some spiritual markers down. Perhaps, as we study the Scripture, He's revealed the reason that I don't get uh, affected when I sin is I've not been born again. I'm not having a spiritual recession. I need a resurrection. And you said the Lord Jesus can cover all my sin. How does that work? It's by faith in what He's done on your behalf. Not that God just cut a corner and said, don't worry about it, that He cut no corner and said, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that sort of transaction can only take place at the cross and by faith in His grace. So, Father, would you um, be authority over our invitation? Help us to be thinking people, to consider our lives and consider the Scripture. Thank you that David, when he transgressed, it was not the end for him. That yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. But you are a shepherd who when his sheep go astray, you go after them. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. You are a father who watches for the returning child. And while they're a long way off, you can see them and feel compassion for them and run to them and restore them so that we serve you out of gratitude, not out of compulsion, out of devotion, not out of uh, a sense of duty, but because it's what we want to do. So, Father, you lead our time. Help us to be prayerful. Help us to respond in a way that you lead us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.